Learn how to get the most of your payments through simple, safe, and smart card transactions. Visit MasterYourCard.org forward slash Canada for tips to master small business security. Master your card with MasterCard Canada. Are you ready to plan for the future? Build the financial foundations for your business with Intuit QuickBooks Startup Foundations. Enroll in the online Startup Foundations workshop and receive a free one-year subscription to Intuit QuickBooks Online. Visit bit.ly forward slash Startup Foundations. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Startup Foundations today to register for free. Traveling for business will never be the same. With Rogers Roam Like Home, you can now stay connected to your business just like you do at home when you use Roam Like Home with your Share Everything for Business plan. For just $5 a day in the United States and $10 a day internationally, you can use your data as you would at home and receive unlimited calling and messaging to Canadian and local numbers with no roaming charges. To learn more, visit rogers.com forward slash small business. Here to give you a first-hand glimpse into the future of Canadian business, it's Rivers Corbett on the Startup Canada podcast. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. On this show, we connect you with the most innovative and entrepreneurial movers, shakers, and change makers across Canada. With day-in-the-life stories and in-their-shoes experiences, we dive into the true grit of running startup and scale-up companies and those driving the entrepreneurial movement. The Startup Canada podcast show is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. If you are a regular show listener, welcome back. If you're new to the program, hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Google Play Music and visit startupcan.ca to connect with both your local startup community and to join Startup Canada to access training, resources, and a peer network to grow your success. I am your host, Rivers Corbett. If you're looking to access the best-in-class mastermind group, then I invite you to join my own Rockstar Mastermind. We teach people how to learn and build a successful company from scratch. Visit therockstarmastermind.com for more information. This is Dr. Sean Wise. He is the Startup Canada Fellow for Startup Communities, a very important role and professor of entrepreneurship at the Ted Rogers School of Management in Toronto. And I like to consider him a very cool, epic friend. Ladies and gentlemen, we are just thrilled to have Dr. Sean Wise on the show today, the Startup Canada podcast show, hurled around the world, believe it or not. We do have listeners around the world. Sean is a true witness to the evolution of startups in Canada since the dot-com boom, early VC fundings to having a structured startup ecosystems we do now. At his very first career at Ernst & Young, the exact implication of personality you would think was Sean because he is way out there. He helped launch their Canadian Venture Capital Advisory Group, focusing on the growth strategies for the innovative ventures of Seed Stage. Ernst & Young, good for you. His notable involvement with the launching of 
Adam Dragon's Den came afterwards at CBC, where Sean served as the consultant for its first five seasons. Since then, Sean has devoted his entire career helping both venture capital industries and startups navigating their ways to maximize innovative potentials of Canadian entrepreneurship. And I've been fortunate enough to be in the audience to watch him. Now at Ryerson University, Sean is the professor and director of the university's own accelerator program called Ryerson Futures, which is mentoring hundreds of innovation-focused startups. Overall, the startups under his mentorship have collectively raised more than, get this, $2.1 billion in capital. And for all of the aforementioned contributions, Sean was named National Startup Mentor of the Year in 2014. That's right, I said national. In the most recent books, Sean had co-authored with Brad Feld, Startup Opportunities, Know When to Quit Your, quit your Day Job, is also one of Amazon's bestseller. As of 2017, Sean took the role of Startup Canada Fellow for Startup Communities. In today's podcast, we're going to talk with Sean about a lot of that stuff we just went through in his intro. Sean, welcome to my Startup Canada podcast show. How lucky am I? No, I'm the one that's lucky, Rivers. I'm a long-time listener, but first-time guest. <laughs> Right on, dude. Well, I the one thing they didn't mention in this was the journey as the naked entrepreneur. And, you know, that's the first time I got to see you on stage at a Startup Canada event. Can you quickly talk about that? And then we're going to dive into, you know, the structured script, which we'll never follow anyway. But uh, can you kind of talk about that journey as the naked entrepreneur? Absolutely. Um, so I first went on to Dragons then and I was, I was interviewed or I was screened to be a dragon. And right. I got a note from the from the network that said, you know, this isn't going to work. He's got a face for radio. Let's put him behind <laughs> the scenes. And so yes. I had the opportunity to work across our great nation from coast to coast to coast, working with entrepreneurs as they prepared for Dragon's Den. Five seasons into it, I got a, a different offer. And that offer was to be in front of the camera and host my own show on the Oprah Winfrey Network called The Naked Entrepreneur. And the reason why I thought that was important to do was I teach entrepreneurship in all sorts of different ways. And people need to have role models. They need to be able to see people that are like them succeed. And yet when I try to tap into the videos from Stanford or from MIT or, or Lean Startup, I kept finding the same old white guys. And so what we did with the Naked Entrepreneur was very specifically look to underrepresented communities find immensely successful billionaires and millionaires, bring them on the stage and then help students and viewers, because it's watched on TV sometimes, uh, understand that everything has a cost and that there is no easy path. So, you know, you look at a guy like Harry Rosen, who's obviously in Mm -hmm. the back end of his career, he's immensely successful, hundreds and hundreds of stores, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of sales, but he ends up crying on the show because he had to trade his weekends with his family for his startup success. And and right. that's sort of a theme through the naked entrepreneur, which is sharing the, you know, the uncool truth, sharing the naked truth, the hardships. And we've had yes. people talk about losing their wife to their CFO and people talking about drug addiction and, and poverty and eating disorders. And I'm not saying that that makes every startup founder, you know, problematic, but we're all human beings. And I think it's important yes. if we're going to pursue honestly entrepreneurship that we see it for the good and the bad. We don't just watch the, the Facebook movie and say, oh, if I drop out of Harvard, I'm going to be successful. It, you know, for every yeah. for every uh, Zuckerberg that there is, there's hundreds of thousands who we never hear about who dropped out of Harvard that went nowhere. 
And so right. the Naked Entrepreneur for five seasons has tried to showcase people like us, people who are doing it and have done it successfully. Yeah. But instead of just reading the, the press you know, highlights, instead of just talking about the amazing stuff, talking about what it's like to be at 3 a.m. and not be able to pay rent. And, and what it's mm. like to have to tell people, I have to fire you because I can't afford you anymore and, and how that affects you as a human being. And I think there's real inspiration there. And that's why when I moved on from Dragons Den, which is a, you know, a reality show that has, has some truth to it and some, some showmanship to it, it was really important to get back to what I love, which is empowering entrepreneurs through knowledge. How does somebody uh, find the episodes of The Naked Entrepreneur now, Sean? Is that really a question anymore? They find them the same way they find everything. You Google it. Just Google naked Rivers, what a stupid question. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite, but you're right. Do uh, you go on freaking Google and just? I'm Google not here it. to self promote, Rivers. I mean, people are they're interested in this, and I'd love to see them. We got some episodes on iTunes. We got some episodes on YouTube. Uh, I'm trying to get them on Netflix, but it's not that good. But people can just Google it. Like you'll just you'll find them. The naked right on. Oh my god, it's coming out of my mouth, and I'm saying he's going to so go at me when I finish this question. Everything's a learning good for experience, you. my friend. Everything is a yeah, learning it is. experience. I, I, and I say it not through self promotion. I say oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It ain't bragging if it's true, but. I really referenced the point that uh, because of the value you just talked about, I think that that's so important. And, and, and you know, and I know that even Zuckerberg has some evil stuff happening yeah. through his journey of building Facebook. So you're right. We are all human and we all go through it. And I love the fact of the naked piece. It's so cool. <laughs> Thanks for letting me take that journey with you. Um, when you were asked to to become a guest on on our show, the Startup Canada podcast, what were what was kind of the the, the one thing or the two things you said? Gee, I'd love to do that because I want to be able to have uh, the listeners walk away with this. What would this be for you today? Well, selfishly, I, I really just wanted to hang out with you, but if I had yeah, to pick so something, <laughs> I think I'd want people to realize that it isn't the 20th century anymore. And this isn't your mama's entrepreneurship. You know, when I was in college in the 90s getting an MBA, you know, and I wanted to learn about entrepreneurship, they gave me like a book by Lee Iacocca. And, oh, yeah, and if yeah, you don't yeah. know, he was a very successful automobile executive. But how does that relate to startups at the dawn of the internet age? Like it didn't. And so I want people to know that, that, that those troubles, those like, how do I do it? And where do I get the money from? And how do I know that I'm building the right product? You don't have to live in the dark. A lot of that information is available. There's available at Startup Canada by going to events. It's available on podcasts like yours. It's available by watching other people's videos, by watching shows like the one I do. So whereas when I was young, um, I had to learn everything the first time because there was none of the, there was no Wikipedia, there was no lean yeah. startup, there was no disciplined entrepreneurship from, from MIT spill outlet, there was no hundred steps to start up. So you don't have to live like that anymore. In today's world, we have so many, we've moved entrepreneurship from an art to a science. And if you can accept that, then you can accept that there are scientific principles that you can follow to increase the probability of success. Yes, you have to hit the market timing right. Yes, it's going to be hard. And yes, you got to be obsessed and be passionate about what you're doing. That's a given. But not knowing right. what to do next, thinking that the same barriers to entry, like I, I don't know any venture capitalists or I don't know how to make my early sales, that's really over. Over. You just Google stuff. You just take a course on Coursera. You just you just enroll in, in your local startup community. And, and by doing all of that, 
you accept the reality that it isn't that it's easier now. It's just different. It's no longer this mysterious black art. It's now a known science. We've been able to, over the last sort of three decades, learn about startups by watching tens of thousands of startups arrive, you know, survive, die, grow, shrink. And we've been able to reverse engineer that path. And by doing that, by, by seeing how other people have beaten the road ahead of you down, you can make less mistakes or at least make new mistakes. And so if I yes. had to tell anybody one message, I would pray they took away from listening to you and I chat for half an hour. It's you're not alone. What you're struggling with is out there. And we know, we actually know academically now, some research just came out that says if you participate in your startup community, you have a higher probability of success. And the reason for that, of course, is obvious. You share experiences. Uh, there's a camaraderie. There's a social network. There's an economy mm -hmm. of scale. And all of those fancy terms means you fail less because you're working as part of a bigger ecosystem. And, and I think mm -hmm. that's just something people need to understand that has changed over the last few decades. And is that is that Sean? Do you think is that the you know the, the missing link, if I could call it that? Because I've seen for so long, you know, that the proverbial fifty percent of entrepreneurs fail in five years, and that moves up from eighty nine to thirty nine percent. Whoever you happen to listen to, but the point is, is that is that the statistics have remained pretty well consistent with the rate of failure. Do you one? Do you buy into that that it it has still been consistent and uh, and is the getting into the ecosystem because it's much more robust, much more vocal now the way to start to significantly address that failure rate and bring it bring it so that downwards versus so that it stays constant. So do I agree with the large failure rate of startups and do I think the lean startup methodology, these new technologies, these new techniques make failure less probable. Well, let me start by saying I, I disagree with your premise. Okay. Most people look at failure at a micro level because, you know, it's your right. business is bad. And so yep. I try to encourage people to understand that if you think about evolution and biology, you know, the traits that work, the traits that survive, the traits that are handed down are the result of the other traits not succeeding. So we have dozens of search engines in the 90s and now we have Google. And yeah, Microsoft would want you to remember Bing, and there's a few other. We have Google. Yeah, Bing. Okay. Yeah. So because of that, Google has come out of this evolutionary process, which unfortunately kills a lot of not perfect companies along the way, and only the most agile survive. Remember, it's not what the Americans think it is. The most strongest survive. It's the most agile right. survive. Right. So right. The, I think what. So if I so I disagree that failure is a bad thing. Now, do I agree with the numbers? Yes. I do believe okay. those high rates of failure over a five-year period are true. But if I learned anything in my PhD, it's that you have to go deeper. So I think what's changed is people are failing faster and they're failing having spent less money. They're failing having gone to the market to test a prototype, realizing that nobody wants to buy their shoes for dogs and as a result have pivoted to shoes for high-end horses. Okay, And as a result that failure has led to a greater success. And so I think these new approaches, these new techniques, these new technologies that all allow us to sort of start faster and, and fail faster are good things. Because you get mm. to the end of the point without spending $5 million, losing your retirement, you know, getting a divorce and, and costing you your, your beautiful head of hair. 
So let me ask you this question then. Do you, and I was at a, I was on a um, webinar yesterday about immigrant entrepreneurs and it was talking about the majority of immigrant entrepreneurs and here I am talking to a doctor, you know, entrepreneurship. So I, I, I'm throwing myself wide open there <laughs> with regards to stats and data and so on, but they were referencing, okay, immigrant entrepreneurs, they, they become successful between 30 and 55. Uh, I'm experiencing here in the city of Fredericton, this amazing, um, uh, um, uh, enlightenment of entrepreneurship amongst those that are 20 to 30. Is there a, is there an age group that is really prominent these days starting the journey of being an entrepreneur in Canada? We've always had the entrepreneurs, but I'm talking about the next five years. Where are you seeing the uh, the grouping, the segmentation, if I could call it, coming from? So where do I see the next great entrepreneurs coming from? Well, let me go back into your statement. So you okay. talked about newcomers, people not born in the country that they're currently working in. You call them immigrants, but I'll call them newcomers. And the reason why newcomers have historically succeeded is a lot simpler than you think. The reason is, is because they don't have a choice. Uh, my grandparents came to this country with nothing, fleeing anti-Semitism in Europe, and they had a choice, stay and, you know, get ready for the Nazis, or flee with nothing and start from the bottom. And when you have those options and you choose flee and start from the bottom, you see it as an opportunity to rebuild yourself. When you add to that the fact that some of the newcomers have credentials, they're doctors or lawyers in their home country, but aren't able to recertify here, they're again, they're forced to evolve. Now, whether that means they own a convenience store or they become uh, an amazing entrepreneur in a high tech startup or that they, 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 they do what has to be done. And, and I think that's also true why Israelis tend to have a higher success rate because mm -hmm. the country doesn't have a lot of natural resources. There's nowhere to fall mm -hmm. back to. It's mm. all knowledge, work, or nothing. You know, it's really burning the burning the ships, isn't it? Well, with, and that's uh, again that's that an country. expression that that's historically maybe a little offensive, but leaving that for a minute, you know, the idea that would you be a hard professor to work to work with? Yeah. I'm so glad I got my MBA before I had to go through you. Yeah, I just think <laughs> I just think truth is truth, so I don't believe. Yes, sir. Uh, I I'm think you got to call it when you see it. But um, <laughs> I think that 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 newcomers are faced not with moving back to their parents' basement. They're faced with not jumping on the, the unemployment train because where they came from, they didn't have any support from the government in so many different cases. Right. As right. for the young. So now you want to talk about millennials and those, those, you know, moving forward mm. in that direction at a young age. And if you want to talk about millennials, I think they also are choosing entrepreneurship in, in higher proportions yes. for reasons that may not be internal. You know, the baby boomers after 2008 didn't have enough money to retire, so they stayed in their jobs. That meant there were new, no new openings in those jobs, so the millennials had nowhere to go. You combine that with the millennials' desire to be working on things they're passionate for, things they're obsessed with, things that they're interested in, and their dispassion for the the man, the, the corporate machine. And then you add to that the, the digital nomad life that so many millennials are, are choosing. And that's even before AI, machine learning, the automation of the white collar workforce. I mean, the number of corporate jobs, job jobs is continuing to shrink and will continue to shrink over the next 10 to 20 years. So millennials, I think, are becoming more entrepreneurial because they have to, because they want to. 
because they want to run their side hustle as a full-time gig because to them that's a rewarding contribution to the universe because that's what they're into. They're solving their own problem in a lot of cases and that problem is being had around the world. So it's a very rewarding choice for some millennials. So where do I think in the next 10, 15 years some of our great CEOs will come from? I think some of them will continue to be newcomers to our country. And I think a lot of them are sitting in university classrooms right now plotting their great world startup. What about the other side where you get these guys and gals that uh, are dealing with, well, we, we, you, you know, a lot of them are hanging on to jobs. But you look at governments as an example. I mean, they're, they're, uh, the big business is really doing the, uh, the opposite. It's pushing people out because of efficiencies of technology and so on. What about that grouping who are trying to rediscover or discover or, or finally say, I'm free. I can finally do what I want to do. Do you see, uh, do you see a, 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 that segment, the, the, the silver economy, if I call it, uh, becoming much more prevalent? The gray foxes. So uh, yes, yes, and I am one too. I see that in your haircut. Um, so there is a lot of research coming out about seniorpreneurs, especially those people who had retired, you know, prior to two thousand and eight, thinking they had enough to go with with their mutual funds before the collapse, and then having yes. to start something. There's also a lot of seniorpreneurs who have worked for, again, in air quotes, the man, the corporate mm. machine the Ernst & Youngs, the Bank of Nova Scotia's, the federal government, and now want to do something they're into. So I, I think that all of this is because it is now easier, less expensive, more known on how to start a startup. Mm. You know, when I first started working in venture capital in 1997, in the dot-com boom in New York City, you know, people were raising $5 million on the back of a napkin over drinks. And then it took two years and that $5 million to realize that the idea that on the napkin just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> now you fast forward to an era where we have PayPal, we have Shopify, we have Google, we have LinkedIn, we have Facebook, and you have all the infrastructure that you can set up a store in an hour. You're seeing it much easier to go to market. It once cost $5 million, now it costs 5000 and mm. so with all of this infrastructure that's in place, the barriers to starting a startup, to starting a new business have shrunk. And that's right. really appealing to millennials who maybe don't have a lot of assets or to seniorpreneurs who are looking to generate more but not take a lot of risk or to newcomers who come with nothing but the clothes on their back. And I think that all of those are tremendous because they're all part of that evolutionary economics, that, 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 that the most agile, the best solutions will hopefully in the end win out. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the time where we need to take a very quick break, but we will be right back with more from our amazing guests. Stay tuned. As an entrepreneur, you're always looking for ways to work smarter, faster, simpler, and better. Grow your business your way with transformative tech like Microsoft Azure, Office 365, Windows 10, and more. Visit modernbiz.ca, that's modernbiz.ca, and see how Microsoft can help you run your business anytime, anywhere. Canadian-born business One by Sun creates and sells a unique collection of printed yoga mats, tote bags, pouches, and prints from original hand-painted designs to customers across Canada, the United States, and Australia. When their products are out for delivery, it's important for their customers to have total visibility to ensure their packages are delivered on time, no matter where their customer is located. UPS Canada helps customers track their shipments 24 hours a day, seven days a week, while co-owners Evangelina and Jamal can focus on growing their business. Join the UPS Small Business Program to get support on your unique supply chain needs. 
plus save 40% off shipping. Visit ups.com forward slash my business. Thank you to our sponsors. And we are back. The, um, you're, you being in this entrepreneurial space is an interesting journey through your career with Ernst & Young, through Ryerson, with uh, Brad Feld and so on. Um, you know, you're, you, you, I know you you have uh, uh, businesses, if you want to call it consulting. I don't know if you have other businesses, but you are a businessman because um, uh, I've seen a training program that you're now bringing to entrepreneurs across the country. Um where, how did that all start with you? I mean, that doctorate in entrepreneurship. I mean, that's it starts uh, way hope. earlier than that, my friend. Yeah, so starts, please tell I'm, me. I'm 13 years old. Yes, I've, perfect, I'm, perfect. I'm working, I thought you were 14, but I was obviously 13. 13. I, I, I was 14 when the story ends, but I was 13, <laughs> and I was flipping fries at McDonald's. Yes, and I was noticing that we were throwing out a lot of food at the end of the shift, and I was also noticing that that we had homeless people who don't look well fed. And at the time, yes. I thought McDonald's was good, good eating. Um, and I went to my manager and I said, if I can take some of the stuff that's off, like going into the garbage, but it's coming from you know the food we've cooked and is sitting too long, can I go and distribute it to those people in need? In other words, there's nothing wrong with this hamburger. And we're only throwing it away because it's been 15 minutes or some, some, set, some, some preset amount. Can we repurpose that? And I remember very clearly that he went into the office, he took out this thing that looked like a phone book of the 700 page like the text, and he looked it up and it actually said, you can't do that. And he said, no. And I was 13, right? So I didn't really understand yeah. like, why is no one no? So I went home and I spoke to my parents and both of my parents uh, were entrepreneurs. They were both high school uh, dropouts and, and both were tremendous successes as entrepreneurs. And I told them nice. the story and they said to me, you know what? If it's going to be, it's up to me. If you don't like how they're doing it, then do it yourself. You don't like following blind rules written in a manual, then you need to be running your own business. And that was the first time that I decided to be an entrepreneur. And by the really? time I went to undergrad and studied engineering and law and business, um, I came to the realization that it wasn't just one startup I wanted to be involved with. It wasn't just one company that my attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, my ADHD, <laughs> wouldn't allow me to do one thing that I decided what I really need to do is help lots of entrepreneurs. And I yeah, began man. this journey to turn it from an art to a science and to, yes. to watch. And so I've been in a portfolio investor role, so I have probably – Along with two partners of mine at Ryerson Futures, we have a portfolio of about 23 companies. So I wow. work on each of those companies weekly with them and with the founders, of course, to try to accelerate their growth, try to help them fail faster and learn smarter and move towards what we call product market fit as fast as possible. What I was finding, though, was it was difficult to teach that to people who didn't have a lot of background. If you'd already done a startup, you could kind of learn some new skills. You didn't have to start from scratch. So I went out and I met a guy from Stanford named uh, Professor Steve Blank. And I studied yes. under Steve Blank, uh, who is the grandfather of the lean startup movement. And you may have heard of one of his students. His student was Eric Reese. And Eric Reese yes. wrote the lean startup. And Eric's now at Harvard. And uh, Steve is now at UC Berkeley. And when I read those books and when I read a similar book by a colleague named Bill Allett from MIT called Disciplined Entrepreneurship, they were eye-opening. They were literally the reverse engineering of Silicon Valley startups. It was like they had dissected in an autopsy the good, the bad, and the ugly and then worked out the path. The only <laughs> showing your age was, again, man. <laughs> I love it. The only problem, Great Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah, but the only problem was 
that my students and the general population aren't typically those that attend Harvard, MIT, or Stanford. That's a real 1% kind of thing. And so while, yeah, I had a PhD and a law degree and a master's in business, so I could kind of figure out what they were saying with my 10 years of venture experience. They just weren't accessible and they weren't actionable. They just weren't able to have my students read them and then go do them. So I set out on a journey a few years ago to create that resource, to take the lean startup from the 1% to everyone, to help Mm -hmm. everyone start with no knowledge and learn step by step how to create a startup. And that's why I created 100 Steps to Startup. And you can find it at 100 Steps to Startup, as it sounds, dot com. That's 100, like the number of steps, like the word to, like the number and uh, startup, like the word, dot com. And it's a program (laughs) of... 100 steps, as you can imagine, about 11 hours of video, 80 different worksheets and exercises like how to find what your customer persona is and how to figure out what your unique value proposition is and how to analyze competition. And even how do you come up with a great startup idea, which, as you know, is the topic of my my most recent book. And, And that's why I built it, because I'm on that same journey I was for the last 33 years, which is if entrepreneurship empowers everyone. How do we allow everyone to use entrepreneurship? Yeah, I love it. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an it's interesting. That's isn't that interesting that that's the quote that's the, uh, the 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 tagline for Startup Canada, where entrepreneurship empowers everyone. I want to go to that book that you referenced, and thank you for the about the hundred steps. I think that I, I again I saw the presentation on it. It is epic. It's great value from what I've seen, and uh, and of course it's got all the the data points to support it. But you you uh, you co-wrote a book with Brad Feld and. And uh, that you were referencing to about the lean startup mm-hmm. and so on. And, you know, the book, uh, it's Startup Opportunities, Know When to Quit Your Day Job. Can you talk a bit about that book? Uh, you know, why should someone not want walk but run to pick up a copy? And I know you don't want to self-promote and so on, but I do because I, uh, I'm i a big fan of yours. And uh, and I want, you, I want you to tell folks as to what's the gems in there that enough to say, I got to go get it. Oh, thank you very much for that. You're very kind. Um, so Brad, ha- Brad Feld is like my George Lucas, right? He uh, does yeah. what I do, but like a hundred times bigger. He's the ma- he's the financier behind, you know, Fitbit and MakerBot and and Guitar Hero and this. And he's such a mensch. He's such a nice human being. He's such a genuine person that I really wanted to work with him and get to know him and even try to get him to mentor me a little bit. Um, and writing a book was how we went about it. And the way it came up with was both Brad and I get the same question about a dozen times a week or more. And that question is, is my idea any good? Now, right. it's a fascinating question, right? Because people want to know if like, is the idea good, then I'll quit. Or the idea is good, then I'll make a website. If the idea is good, yeah. then yeah. I'll, like, I'll, I'll start building it. The problem is that 20 years ago, venture capitalists, especially young venture capitalists like myself, thought they knew everything. And we thought we could pick winners by listening to slide presentations. And 20 years later, (laughs) uh, I think my track record, which is reasonable, uh, it's not quite Brad's, but it's reasonable, just shows that even the best VC is right like two out of 10 times. I don't know right. about you, but I don't want to go to a mechanic and give him my Porsche and say, uh, if you're only right two out of 10 time on Porsches, you go ahead. So people get it wrong. They think that that we have the answer and that our blessing or our check or our support or our telling you that it's going to be great has any impact on reality. And the truth is, is it doesn't. 
Yes, mm-hmm. I know what to look for. And yes, I have years of experience coaching and mentoring startups to greatness. And that's all wonderful. But what you need to do is to get in front of your customers, not your investors. You right need on. To, you need to engage early on and do what we call customer discovery and, and really confirm before you quit your job that there's a really big unmet market need and that you can access people who have that market need, the early adopters, if you will, and that the solution you're dreaming about would address that problem in an exponential way. Let me say that again. You really want to work with early customers, early adopters, if you will, to determine uh, these important things. The first one is that they have the unmet market need that that you think. So if I started choking you, Rivers, your need for oxygen would be huge and you'd pay anything to get it. So I've seen the size of your hands, man. It would be huge. I have big hands. So (laughs) the idea is that if you can find a real need, not a want, then you're at least moving forward. And then the second thing you want to check is that you can access people with that need. I might come up with a brilliant way in my own mind, for astronauts to do something better. But the key is I'm not talking to astronauts every day. I don't know what they need and their needs are. So why would I ever want to do a startup in a space where I have no insight? I'm not a member of the customer base. I have no domain knowledge. And and so the second thing you want to make sure about is is that you're a member of that group that has the unmet market need. And the third thing you want to confirm before you quit your day Mm. job is that the solution you're proposing, whatever that is, we're going to watch movies. Instead of getting DVDs, we're going to stream them over the internet. That that would solve the problem your early adopters have in an exponential Mm -hmm. way. Now, I'm saying exponential Mm -hmm. 10x because if you're just a little better than Google, you're never going to be Google. If you're just a little better than Blockbuster, you're never going to be Blockbuster. But if for $9.99, I can get a 1,000 times the movies, I can walk a thousand times less to the video store. I never pay late fines and I don't have to deal with that out of work student from York university who thinks they know what kind of movies I like. And, right. and as a result, that's why Netflix works so well. And that's why a lot of these creative destructive solutions, you know, how Google kills, you know, librarians or Wikipedia puts encyclopedia <laughs> out of business. You know, all of that comes from this idea of solving a huge unmet market need in a 10x sure. manner. But it's key, Rivers, to test this shit before you quit your job, before you sell your kids to science experiments to make money so that you can support yourself, before you mortgage your home. You used to not be able to do that, right? Because the only store you could do for under a thousand bucks was like a, like a t-shirt store. Yes. But now you can do so much. You can use crowdfunding. You can use sites like Product Hunt. You can test these ideas. And so we wrote this book not only to answer the question, is my idea any good, but to empower people to teach themselves how to make that good idea great and how to know when a good idea really isn't so good. And the whole point of the book is for people to fail at the ideation stage, not fail at the I've already spent $500,000 stage. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
I'm not going to dare ask you as to where do you find the book. That would be the because <laughs> you can Google it, but it's on Amazon, yeah, it's on Barnes and Noble. It's but what I am going to do, uh, Doctor Weiss, is to ask you to again repeat the title of the book so <laughs> that people can get that right when they're googling it. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm Doctor Sean Wise, and my latest book, a bestseller on Amazon, is entitled "Startup Opportunities: Know When to Quit Your Day Job." And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to www.startup-opportunities.com or just use the Google. So I have one more question for you, my great friend. And, sure. uh, and I want to talk about pitching because you mm-hmm. are an investor. You are a professor. You are a business owner. Uh, you have been seeing the journey. If you were, if you had 60 seconds in front of uh, an audience to say, this is what makes a great business pitch? Go, Dr. Wise. So first I would tell you that if you put in Sean Wise and the words elevator pitch into Google, you'll get my only million view video, the elevator pitch. So on Dragon's Den, I spent five seasons listening to pitches. So I've seen 10,000 plus pitches. But in the end, if you only have 60 seconds, this is what you want to do. First, you want to start by identifying the unmet market need. What is the problem you're trying to solve? That's sort of your opening problem statement. Then you want to follow it with your value proposition. How will you solve that problem exponentially better than what's in the market? Wherever possible, you want to show, not tell. So you want to use actual numbers. There's a billion people suffering according to X. We have sold 1% of those people according to Y. And by using real arm's length data points, you move from subjective, everybody loves us, to, well, we don't know if everyone loves us, but 9 out of 10 of our customers come back weekly to buy more stuff. So Mm. when you're doing your elevator pitch, start with the problem statement, finish with the value proposition, and then make sure it meets these four key criteria. It has to be succinct, under a minute. It has to be easily understandable. Both your grandma and your grandkids have to get it. No tech talk. It Mm. has to be lucrative. You have to see it and go, yeah, if that works, people are going to buy that. And finally, it's got to be irrefutable. You don't want to start your, your elevator pitch with a question and everyone focuses on what's the answer to that. You know, if I was going to sell a product, you probably know lots about my friend Viagra, you know, I would lead with people <laughs> want to have sex longer than their bodies will allow. Our yes, aspirin blue tablet allows them to do so in an FDA approved manner. Elevator pitching is a key skill. And again, you can learn all about elevator pitching by Googling elevator pitching or Dr. Sean White. (laughs) I let you go over a minute on that one, but because, because it's so important, but you, uh, you definitely covered a lot of the bases in a very succinct, quick time period. And, I'm glad I asked that question as the last question because I think that's uh, when I work with entrepreneurs, new ones, whatever, you know, engineers, whatever. It's it is it's atrocious the uh, how they don't spend enough time getting that message down succinctly as you just uh, referenced and no tech talk especially. So, uh, Sean, um, love talking. Are you going to the startup day on the hill this year? Damn right, I'm doing the opening act to warm up the audience. Nice. And quick note about uh, your uh, your focus on startup communities. Another minute and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hug and kiss and say goodbye. You got it. You know, Rivers, I've, I've really enjoyed the last year. I've been on sabbatical from Ryerson and I've been working with Startup Canada as their startup fellow for communities. And in that opportunity, I've been able to meet with, with, with dozens of communities, uh, you know, from Prince George to 
to Moncton. And it's been such an amazing experience to get back into the field. You know, I live in Toronto, I, I work in New York in the Valley, and, and we only see sort of a very specific type of entrepreneur. But on this great journey, I've been able to meet with so many people across Canada. And I really want us to, to, to understand the future doesn't have to be the Chinese dragon or the Indian tiger. It can be the Canadian Wolverine. We mm. have, according to StatsCan, 19% of Canadians identify themselves as entrepreneurs. That is almost double the number that the U.S. Census Bureau gives for Americans. Now, they may have more in total, and they're definitely louder, but that does not mean we don't have that spirit. This great nation of ours was built by entrepreneurs just like it was built by newcomers. And together, they're going to take us into the future. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Want access to resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Till next week, I'm Rivers Corbett leaving you with a sneak peek of next week's episode. This is Carlo Colacci, co-founder and president of the Drake General Store, and you're listening to Startup Canada Podcast. Um, this conversation is very cool because we don't get to talk to a lot of quote-unquote retail locations, and I know you're not the typical retail location. Can you talk, Carlo, about the, um, uh, and I know, by the way, there's listeners on here that are from coast to coast that, that are in the position of retail and want to learn about uh, certain elements of building businesses and so on, but I think it would be a very unique thing for you to address what are the, what are some top considerations that you suggest that uh, based on what you went through from when you decided to do to bridge from being a bricks and mortar to an online operation can you give us some thoughts on best practices and that as it relates to your journey sure yeah I mean I could I could say that um, right off the top we are learning every day on the bricks and mortar side and the comm side where it's, it's, the, the landscape is really changing you know it, the media is really talking about this retail reset and you know the, the big driver behind it is obviously the online shopping world and, and the growth that it's seeing and uh, we've uh, you know, we started our business almost nine years now, and and probably about mm-hmm. two to three years into it, we launched our first, uh, the first version of our online shop, and it was something we built ourselves, very grassroots. It functioned well, you know, it was secure, right. but it, it definitely you know looked a lot different than it does today. And and uh, I bet. But um, you know, we we but you did it. You we, didn't wait for it to be perfect before you launched it. I think that's the that's a good lesson in itself. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it was, um, you know, as us recognizing that that is where the shift will be going um you know today's business world is is changing uh, and especially on the retail side so i think it's hard it's hard to say where it's going to end up obviously um but we uh, we believe that you know there is a strong connection between brick and mortar and online. Um, there have been businesses that have started just online and then have added brick and mortar. There, there have been businesses that started as you know standalone stores that have added online, and then there are ones that are exclusively either brick and mortar or online stores. And I think there's a place for each of those um, types of businesses. 
Um, but there are definitely economies of scale when you, you know, kind of add that online element to a retail store. There are a lot of great um, software options out there, great companies. Uh, you know, Shopify is a good example of a Canadian business that really makes it easy for anyone to, to go online and, and affordable. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we recognized that at the beginning and we knew that um, it was and is a very different business. There are some economies as far as, you know, inventory and, um, you know, kind of the curation and the marketing aspect of what we do. There is very aligned between um, our, our brick and mortar and our online channels. But everything else is very different. It's operationally mm-hmm. totally different, requires a total different, like, skill set as far as, you know, how you attract customers and how you retain those customers and how you grow your business overall. But very exciting. I love both. I love the, the, the brick and mortar business because it, you know, really satisfies that, you know, physical and and I guess more on the emotional side too. You're in there, you're experiencing sure. it, you're feeling it, you're touching it, sometimes you're tasting yeah. it, you know, it's it's there. Sure. Um, but then the ease of online shopping is also very appealing. You know, you can go out, a lot of customers, we see this, they'll go out and they'll be very interested in something, but they won't want to pull the trigger there. They'll they'll want to think about it or they'll want to you know, yeah. compare um, other, you know, they'll do a quick search online to see, you know, if anyone else is offering it uh, cheaper, but then we'll see that online order come through later in the day. And, you know, sometimes we can connect the two because they're you know, repeat customers and we know them, but, but, but that's just the nature of business. And we're seeing that there is a benefit, you know, there is that customer that sometimes wants to come in and see it, but then buy from their yeah. couch. Um, and then there's that customer that doesn't live in Toronto and will never come to Toronto or any city that our store is in, but they still would be a great customer. And that's, you know, that's the real benefit from my perspective is that you really are opening yourselves up to, to a worldwide market. The challenge is how do you really connect with that customer um, who's, you know, halfway around the world. And there are yeah, many. Well, there's, the, there's the cultural piece again, right? Because that's pretty. That's paramount to the success of your business. Exactly. Sure that, that is being delivered. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, one way we've been really successful is really um, part, partnering with um, um, other brands or artists or um, you know anyone that we think is doing something really cool. Figuring out how we can partner together to do whether it's to host an event or to have them pop up in our store or to collaborate on a product uh, that will be released through our channels or other channels. And usually that partner of ours is, uh, you know, kind of running their own thing, whether they're, you know, they're running their their own company or they're just, you know, like I said, making things at at home on their side, on the side, they usually have a following. They're usually pretty proud of what they're doing. And they, you know, they have an Instagram account, they may have you know, 100 followers or 100,000 followers. And it's really about that partnership where we're sharing their story with our followers and vice versa. And that's really, that's really worked for us to attract um, a customer that wouldn't really be able to find us like through, you know, other than, you know, strolling along Queen Street and popping into a store or or reading about us somewhere. Um, That's really helped us. And it's been a lot of fun. I think primarily that's why we do it.